Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Well, Danny, you got to sing us in here. Guy, what do you got, Stone Pony there, buddy? You don't seem like the Stone Pony It's interesting. So obviously for the folks listening, they can't see us, but I'm wearing a Stone Pony t-shirt. The Stone Pony being one of the great bars on the Jersey Shore, I think started in 1974. If you were to go, you might fortunate enough to see the great Bruce Springsteen show up, Dan. Yeah. Well, I, you know. Oh, come on. Park, what do you mean? Yeah. Great. No, I'm just telling you. It's a great place. <laughs> if you want to go to you know a bar I think and listen to sold great out, tunes, guys. go to the Stone Pony. I think when, when, when Bruce and the E Street Band were, um, you know, they were like pre-born to run and they were doing their thing down there. Now it's like some, it's like a, it's like a mecca to him. I don't think it's like the legit. What about Bon Jovi? He's down around there, isn't he? Somewhere. Bon Jovi is. I believe he lives in the Rumson area, the high net worth area area danny moses i'm sure you've played golf at due process because i know that's how you roll for you folks in south jersey what also is rolling this week and i I gotta pay homage i don't know how you spell that one i think there's an h in front of it but paying homage to the great dan nathan who for weeks if not longer has been saying you know what guy 10-year yields are going to one and a quarter percent you can at me all you want but 10-year yields are going to one and a quarter and magically this week where do they go dan nathan yeah, they went to one and a quarter. And that was kind of a technical thing. It broke that downtrend that had been in place from the August 2020 lows. And, and listen, I got to give you a lot of credit, Guy. This is before we started the podcast in January. Last summer, when we were at all-time lows in yields, you said, we're going to go from 50 bips straight to 1%. We did. Then you said, we're going to go from one to two this year. We almost got there. I guess my concerns quite simply were that expectations for second half growth and in some sort of like coordinated reflation trade just didn't seem particularly likely. And that, you know, maybe as me as channeling my Danny Moses, my inner global financial crisis, I just remember that the recovery globally was not linear and it was like a rolling crisis. And I know what's different this time that we threw $30 trillion at the global economy and that was coordinated. It just seemed like all that debt made it so that rates couldn't go particularly high and that growth wasn't going to be as linear as people thought. Three or four weeks ago when bonds kind of inflected, I don't remember the exact date, but it was around that time, I think, when we kind of peaked and started to come off when Carter Worth changes to, technically speaking, I said to you guys in here that I'm wondering if this Delta variant and other issues is causing something else. Are we not seeing it? Is the market trying to tell us something? And I think it's a combination of that Obviously, I feel like today with the cancellation of attendance at the Olympics is the equivalent in a much smaller scale the day that the NBA canceled those games. Everybody kind of remembers that as a seminal moment when this thing was real. Now I think we're more equipped to deal with it. Hopefully the vaccines work. But the problem is a lot of the world is not vaccinated. And I know a lot of the people that control the money around the globe are vaccinated for whatever reason, whatever demographic that puts them in. If you're a portfolio manager, mutual fund manager, hedge fund manager, and I think a lot of the time Wall Street thinks way too much, not about themselves, but they're in their own circle and they're not paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. But Danny, so let me ask you a question because I like to be not only participant, as I like to say, but I'm also a listener. And my question to you is, does that by definition mean the Fed has it right? I would submit 
that they don't have it right. They're just getting bailed out, the fact that yields are going lower. But far from it, they're still screwed, in my opinion. I actually think it's going to go back the other way to being screwed. I think the pressure now is going to go on some type of fiscal stimulus that may need to come again. What if if we do slow down and retrench again here, they will drop off quickly. To Dan's point, whether inflation was transitory or not, there will certain things will drop off of a cliff quickly. And what does that mean? We have a debt ceiling issue that I know we're going to talk about August 1st. It'll get extended and played around with for weeks or months. But what are you issuing? How much more can we do here before these stocks are trenched? The airlines are telling you right now, the airline stocks are down 20%, but they're up, what, 200 or something from, where, from, from the lows. So a lot of signals out there, a lot of mixed signals out there. And it's getting actually a little bit scary. I would say one of the things that this week is particularly interesting is that there's this big divergence between small cap stocks, the Russell 2000, and large cap stocks. The S&P 500 was at an all-time high yesterday. The NASDAQ, the same. You know, They're down basically 1% or so from their all-time highs. The Russell 2000 is down 5 6%. Hasn't confirmed any new highs in the S&P 500 in months. And it topped out right around the time where yields topped out in late February. And so here's the thing. I mean, I think it's really important to disconnect the economy from the markets that we're looking at. The stock market's just fine, or maybe those big leadership names are just fine. Maybe under the hood, it's not particularly great, but I don't think we're going to have some meaningful slowdown. What I think we're going to have is a deceleration of what we had off of the V reversal that we had heard about for so long. The combination of fiscal and monetary that we got in 2020 and the continuation of some continued fiscal and dovish monetary. So to me, I think the point is whether rates go to 1%, which actually they could this summer and they could have a big ricochet, it really probably doesn't change much about what the Fed's going to do and they may start to taper still in Q4. Well, there's a big difference between rooting for the market to go up and rates to go up just enough where it doesn't hurt growth. And then there's this, why are rates going down to these levels? and the fear beyond that. So when the S&P is trading at this multiple, it's easy to see the rotation. Retail people have gotten smoked. The meme stock, the indices they trade in, the meme stocks are down a lot. The coins, digital coins continue to get wiped. The fund managers, the large ones that are in the Amazons of the world and these things that Dan, you pointed out months ago, act defensive in nature, are rallying. The money is not necessarily leaving the market. So it's hard to identify what we call bull market, bear market momentum or not. It's happening in pockets all over. I think that's a really good point because we talked about these different sector rotations off of the bottom and the throes of the pandemic, at least the market crash last spring or so. But what's going on right now is 100% the case that you've seen tech IPOs, unprofitable, down 50% from their highs. You've seen crypto down 50% from their highs. Then you've seen a lot of these meme stocks, the same thing. You've seen SPACs just getting demolished right here. And you've actually seen an uptick in SPAC issuance. I don't know if you noticed that over the last couple of weeks or so. But then all this money pouring into you know Apple and Amazon this week making new all-time highs. They had not made new all-time highs since September of 2020. So to me, that is defensive. It's not particularly bullish. Again, the Stock market's still doing just fine, people. You know, the S&P and the NASDAQ are down again, one, one and a half percent from their all-time highs, up double digits on the year. I think that a reset of expectations, and I think earnings season may help us do that as we get into it over the next couple of weeks, might be the best thing for the market near term. You know, Dan, Danny said something that made me pretty scared. He says a lot of things that actually keep me up at night. And he said, you know, here <laughs> we come again in terms of the Fed, which is actually eerily reminiscent of a 1977 Dolly Parton song for you fans out there. Dolly Parton, one of the great Americans, by the way. I, my question to you is, would the Fed even consider another round of this horseshit? And if they did, what happens to U.S. dollar that has finally found its footing, but I think is headed a lot lower? And that wrecking ball, that great song by Taylor Swift, 
that uh, Brian Kelly talks about the U.S. dollar being. What happens with that sucker? Well, again, we're getting cover because Europe now is going to let inflation run rampant. You got an Olympics issue, which obviously state of emergency in Japan, that's an issue. China, we'll talk about them in a minute, not only overreaching probably with some of their of their large company stocks that are trading here in the U.S., but also has issues with the virus. And so it's it's global right now. And look at South Africa. Look in Africa. Look at look at the continents that don't have the vaccines. It's going to get really tough. So they have air cover. The Fed does here because they don't have to do anything. I don't think they're going to inject any stimulus near term. That, I think, would create actually panic into the market. Yeah. I mean, there's subtle ways they can continue to do it, like the bipartisan infrastructure bill worth a trillion dollars. Here's an economist headline that just hits the tape here. The global economic recovery is fast, furious, and fragile. And that's kind of the point. I mean, we've had a very fragile economy since the financial crisis. And that was one of the reasons why we had all of those fits and starts with QE2, 3, 4, and then all the fits and starts with the taper tantrum. And it took years and years for them to start to taper and then obviously to come off ZERP. So I just don't know why we would expect it to be too different. I think that they might be able to be a little more nuanced as the way they start to taper in a way that maybe the market doesn't mind it as much because they're comfortable with the fact that rates aren't going meaningfully higher anytime soon. So you mentioned the three Fs there. I'll add my right. own F, and that would be the global recovery. It's also Fugazi, which is start with an F, Dan, Nathan. And listen, you know, it's interesting. We find ourselves now, all of a sudden, some of these analysts out there giving some warnings. For example, BlackRock. BlackRock's pretty large, last I looked. They downgraded their outlook for U.S. stocks, number one. Goldman Sachs says stocks more likely to move lower over the next six months. Morgan Stanley Equity markets took to take a break this summer. Even Tom Lee, who we've had on this podcast, think things are going to get a little choppy here. So Danny Moses is the sell-off that we've all been waiting for. I've been waiting for it and talking about it seemingly for years. Are we on the cusp of it, or is this just another one of those things where we're going to whistle past the graveyard, a one-day, two-day event, and off we go to the races again? I mean, again, I've said this before. I wake up each day, and I try to create a T-chart on the left side positives, on the right side, negatives, and on the right side just fills. And the only positive I can come up with is the Fed has your back and moral hazard. They're always going to be buying opportunities. I was talking this week to some hedge fund managers, and I was saying to them how I feel like right now, going forward for the next three to five years, maybe the best alpha opportunity, money-making opportunity on the long and short side, because it feels like we are going to stay in a very choppy market. Whether that's a sustained downdraft or updraft, I just know that every time the market feels like it's going down, it feels like it's going down a lot more and then tends to recover. It is as strong as it can be, and that has to be the moral hazard feeling the Fed has your back. As we talked about last week, they'll just buy corporate debt, or they'll do something else, right? It's not, it's not They aren't, aren't going to let this thing fail right now, but the negatives are starting to outweigh the positives. The geopolitical risks are maybe as great as they've been. The OPEC situation, the unrest within that, how do you manage through the price of oil and the impact that's having? There's a lot of things out there that are unresolved, and Washington's going to do nothing. We know what's going on in D.C. Bipartisan does not exist right now. Is it as simple, guys, that we're going to get next week, we start with the bank earnings? Yeah, we do. Then we get, you know, towards the end of the month, we're going to get all the major tech names. There's going to be a lot of industrials kind of smattered in there. And we don't really get retail until early to mid-August or so. I mean, are we likely to just see a, a reset? S&P, I think, on a trailing basis is like 28, 29 times, which is multi-decade Ridiculous. highs. Ridiculous. 
Say and, it. Whoa, guy, Donnie. <laughs> no, I'm, you know, I get a little <laughs> exercise sometimes because it needs to be said. It's crazy. Well, I know, but you know, I mean, listen, trying to short stuff on valuation, as we've all learned, um, is a really hard thing, and it's something we'll usually say in hindsight. Oh, yeah, well, you know, twenty-two times forward was a bit expensive in what might be a rising rate environment in the next year or two or something like that. So that really can't be it. I really do think it has to do with the investors getting comfortable with what the deceleration looks like and how we start to get to normalized pre-pandemic growth rates. If that makes sense. And so it's interesting what Danny said about Europe and what they're going to allow with inflation. Again, I I just urge all of our listeners, all of these massive numbers that we're seeing, just like the declines that we saw in Q1 and Q2 of 2020, whatever metric you were looking at and whatever you're looking at up 60, 70% year over year in 2021, just throw it out. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So we have to start thinking about 2022 and being on the other side of this. And let's be clear, Danny, what you were just saying about who's vaccinated around the world and and this – we're back to normal here. The pandemic's not coming back to America. It may come back and people might get sick and people might die. But as long as these variants don't get too crazy and start killing people who are vaccinated, I just don't think that's going to be a problem for our economy. I actually remember during the housing crisis, because it was happening in 2005 and six all over the country, but it wasn't happening in Greenwich and Marblehead and Oyster Bay and those things. That happened later because the wealthy were protected because they didn't have loans on three homes. They didn't have those things. So they were ignoring it. It feels similar to that, that I'm not calling this a housing crisis. I'm not comparing the global financial crisis to this. But again, I think looking through the eyes of the money managers, they're willfully ignoring potentially what could be coming in a slowdown. And the other thing is that we got, we kind of got this week that Powell is probably safe. He's probably going to get nominated again for the Fed. But Liz Warren's name has now popped up three or four times, not at the Fed, but that she's the puppet master behind people that may go into the Fed as vice chair, potentially. Crypto regulation, all these things that are happening. Fannie and Freddie you know, any of these type of housing standards, you know, affordability issues. That's not great for capitalism in terms of the stock market per se. I feel like that's creeping into the market a little bit here. We're starting to see stuff from the FTC, not allowing mergers, breaking up companies, things like that. Really non-capital friendly things. Bank regulation could come back in. They're talking about putting someone at the Fed as a vice chair or something that can really be harsher on banks per se. So There's other things going on that I think are being ignored right now also. So much to unravel. You mentioned breaking up. I immediately think of the great singer-songwriter Neil Sedaka. I mean, Neil Sedaka, by the way, killed it in the day. Him, Paul Anka, all those guys, number one. Number two, you mentioned Fed chair. I thought Janet Yellen was the Fed chair because she does an awful lot of talking about things that she shouldn't be talking about. Number two, Elizabeth Warren, good for her. You know what? Who knows really what's going on behind the scenes? But we also got to talk about the Olympics in a second. But before we do, Danny Moses, as all you great Trek stars know, the winners of these events where you pass the baton, you know what they call those things? Anybody want to help me out the here? The relay. Relays. They're not one in the first leg. They're not one in the second leg. They're typically one with the anchor leg. And Dan mentioned something earlier. Yes, we have bank earnings coming up this week, the initial leg of this relay. But the race is going to be won at the end of the month when the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, the Microsofts, the F-Mega Complex reports, Dan Nathan. Isn't that true? Why are we even paying attention to what J.P. Morgan says when they're a fly in the ass 
of the broader market. Whoa, bro. Well, I'm just saying. Well, here's the thing. You know, it feels like it wasn't too long ago when the MAGA complex was coined, and that was because all those names, those four, just crossed one trillion, and now they're all at least two trillion or in or about it or so. I mean, here's the danger is that the continuation of these rallies in Amazon and Apple, they're just not sustainable after earnings. And if you think back to Q1 results, um, a lot of these stocks ran into them, and they did not do particularly well after, despite putting up good reports and good guidance. So the fact that you have five stocks that make up 20% of the S&P 500, 44% of the NASDAQ 100, and they're all running like this, they're masking a lot of really, really bad performance in other pockets of the market. Danny just mentioned you know, airlines, some of these reopening trades. I think our friend Tom Lee calls them the epicenter stocks, the hardest hit names during the pandemic. Well, when you see the sort of rollover that we've had, they all got back to their pre-pandemic levels and then have just come off 20%. You could say the same thing. We've seen that that in banks now, not 20%, but at least 10%. We've seen that in home builders. There's a lot of other areas too of the market that are not acting particularly well. And maybe they're signaling that slowdown that Danny's talking about. You know what else I'm watching, Guy? Please tell me. USdebt.org. You ever look at Come that? On. Come look, on. Come on. You ever look at that chart? Are we you up look to at 32 that? trillion. What's the real number, by the way? My sense is 32 trillion is just a, again, a fly in the ass of the real number, which is probably north of a hundred trillion dollars with if you think about it is five times the GDP of this country, which is mind numbing. You know what it actually looks like when I go into a casino when the ledger of the casino that's on the other side and things keep rising like this, when I walk into a casino, that's probably what happens when you go to US uh, sorry, US dot org. Sorry. <laughs> US I think since we're sitting here it's gone up two hundred million. But it's twenty eight and a half billion the US national debt. So we got a debt ceiling situation on August first, right? So back in two thousand nineteen the bipartisan, which we haven't heard that word in a long time, Budget Act allowed this thing to extend till July 31st, 2021. Well, when we get out of recess and back into Washington, there's an issue. And like I just said before, Treasury is going to come up with some antics. You know, you can kind of extend and pretend, but this is a major issue. And the reason I say this is you said earlier, what else can the Fed do? What else can the Treasury do? Can we really, when we went through the pandemic, I don't know where debt was exactly when the pandemic hit last year in March, but I think it was under 20 trillion around the 20 to 22 trillion level somewhere. We've, we've put in six to eight trillion. What are we going to do here? So I know on a relative basis, UX looks sexy, but guy, you talked about it before, the debt to GDP of this country, especially if GDP starts to trade back down again, that's a scary situation to think about. No doubt about it. And global debt to GDP, I think is north of 100% as well. I mean, it, the whole thing is just a time bomb that we talk about all the time and people are probably tired of listening to us talk about it, but I think it's important for people to understand in my opinion, I think you share it, Danny, this entire thing is built in sand. And at a certain point, it's unsustainable. Well, yeah, but what do you do about it? I mean, that's the thing. I like to play devil's advocate too. And I like to be a realist also. Okay. But I think about like the landscape that we're in. I mean, we just had the worst health and economic crisis the world's seen in a hundred years. And it wasn't in pockets. It was the, you know, across the globe. And the U.S. equity market, the largest in the world, had a bear market that lasted like what? two months or something like that. And we were back making new highs after six months. So some things really have to become broken, Guy, for us to have a sustained bear market. Again, you know, I came into this business in the late 90s and, you know, everybody was saying run for the hills because of this valuation and this pocket of exuberance and this and that or whatever. I mean, heck, people forget that Greenspan made that irrational exuberance comment. What, what did he make that guy in 1995? No, it was about 18 six? months early. No, I get it. I don't well, It wasn't 18 I mean, months I have an early. elephant it memory 
literally you know. 1995. I think it was December 1995. The stock market didn't top out until 2000. The stock market went up 35% a year for five years, you know? So I, I guess my point is, is I, I don't know what to do with it. I know that we have our biases. I grew up in the markets in a bubble and I saw it burst and it was a sustained bear market that felt like it was never going to end from the highs in 2000 to the lows in 2002. And then the financial crisis, that hit people in a very different way, not only in the stock market, but it hit them in their homes and their home values and that sort of thing. So again, I would have thought that last year, take the dot-com bubble and then take the financial crisis and you wrap it all up. And that's what we had, but we don't. One of the other things going on in Washington um, with the FTC and other things is that I think the White House is looking where the root of some of this inflation numbers are, and that is in shipping. And So if you look, the news in the last few days has been they're now looking into the railroads that are a monopoly, the shipping companies that control the majority of the transit export and import. And I think they're trying to figure out, is there a way to kind of loosen that a little bit? And I think that tells you that they're a little bit nervous, that there's certain things they want to be able to control and not. But again, breaking up large companies and something is something that I think it's kind of building its way into the marketplace. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess that would be the concern. And going back to the pandemic, we were worried about shortages. We were worried about hoarding. And here we are on the flip side of the pandemic, hopefully, and we're worried about a lot of the same things. So my whole point about, you know, what's transitory and what's not is that these will likely work themselves out. You know what I mean? Um, global supply chains are still messed up. We've been talking on the podcast for, it feels like weeks now, about when you have these flare-ups in China and we know these ports get back up and, and shipping rates are really high and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But by the time we get to 2022, a lot of this stuff will have uh, fixed. And I'll, I'll just say this. Three shipping alliances control 80% of the shipping market. And in the year 2000, the top 10 controlled 12%. So it is an issue. Do you guys have your buzzers ready? We're going to play a quick game here. All get right. ready. I'm going to mention names. And when you think you know the answer, please buzz in. Okay. I see you both. Here we go. You ready? Jane Fonda. Ted Jack Turner. Lemon. Danny, don't blurt. Michael Douglas. Anybody? Anybody? Any, Bueller? No, it was the movie about the um, the nuclear... Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, what Dan. Called? It's called The China Syndrome, yeah, the a China great Syndrome. movie. Why yeah. do I bring that up? Because those suckers are flexing their muscles, and it's manifesting itself in this head and shoulders pattern in the FXI, and obviously in these... Chinese stocks like the Didi's, the Babas, and those things. And listen, maybe it's short-lived. I don't know. But should we be watching this, Dan Nathan? Should we be focused on it? First things first, Danny Moses had, it was like a little mini rot, a little mini rip off the tape last week about China and about what was going on, specifically about Didi. And this is one that kind of, I think it kind of snuck it by the goalie here a little bit. And the funny thing is, if you had looked at Alibaba, which what did guy that topped out somewhere above three hundred dollars, three hundred and twenty dollars or something like that. I think today, Thursday, it's trading like two hundred dollars. It just made a series of lower highs and lower lows. I mean, that was telling you the whole thing. The fact that they were able to get that thing on the tape is really interesting to me. But Danny, let's hear your take because the Chinese really going back to November when they disappeared Jack Ma and Ant the stock financial. was about yeah, about the Ant financial thing. How how did this one squeak by? I mean, I think the bankers kind of had a little rumor that it was coming since they did these roadshows in two days and priced all these deals in the last three months. But this is different because the, the big difference now is that China basically took over Hong Kong, as we talked about last week, right? So they want to take over that market. If they want to take over that market, they, they want to control those companies. So this is many legs to this stool. They want privacy. Well, well, they want to own all the data, not for anybody else. They want to track all of their citizens. Two, they want to keep all the money home. This has gone beyond just 
making the DD app disappear off people's phones. This is now about you cannot list potentially outside of China if you're a Chinese domiciled company. And that's a whole different world. So China's always been kind of like, oh, they'll, they'll push to a limit, but they're not stupid. I think this potentially has stupid written all over it, potentially, when I, when I say, well, how far are they going to go here? That's a way for them to punish U.S., right? It's a no definite way to punish it. the market. And, and if, and if, you're willing to, if you're willing to lose in the short term, and when I say short term for them, you're talking years to win the war, which for them, it's over 50 years. You would do things like this without question because they understand that we live minute to minute they live decade to decade. Yeah, and they're listen, their currency is under pressure, right? Their economy is under pressure. Anything they can punish the rest of the world and gain, they're going to do because it's a, you know, mar- the it's a zero sum game in terms of where those money flows go. So, I think that's a much deeper strategy and I don't think that should be ignored. And I think that, you know, the bankers, I would not be surprised to see the banks leave Hong Kong, start to close shop, the US banks that are there. Yeah. I'm not sure how big their presences are right now anyway. So, so I, you know, it's interesting. I talked to a friend of mine who's back. He lives in Hong Kong. He is a banker. He's back in the States for a few weeks. And he said, you are going to see a lot of Western banks and that sort of thing just leave. And I asked him, you know, like, you know, he's an American, spent years on Wall Street here. Does it have a sort of different feel? And he's like, it most definitely has a, a sort of different feel. There's a reason why all those banks didn't set up in Beijing or Shanghai the way they did in Hong Kong, you know, many, many years ago. I'll just say this. I feel like, and I'm just going to, I'm not being contrarian for the sake of it. We just had this 100-year anniversary of the Communist China spy. This is all fairly coordinated. And I think she is obviously a pretty sharp guy. I think that they're going to do it to a point. I think we're going to probably like move past this in a little bit. They're probably going to achieve what they want to achieve about dual listings. They want to have listings over there in Hong Kong. But I just don't really think they want to damage those those champions, you know, the Alibabas and the Didis, the, the way that um, you know, we might think. And the last thing I'll just say – I think this is much worse for U.S. multinationals. If they're willing to do this to their own companies, just imagine how difficult it's going to be for some of our companies. And, and you got to throw Apple right in there. You know, We know Facebook's not there. We know that Amazon's not there. Keep going. Yeah. You're going to hit the right name in a second. Keep going, Dan. All right. What do you got? Tesla. That's a U.S. multinational. I knew the answer to that, by the way, because we did 30 minutes and we haven't heard it. I knew it was coming right. at some point. And that's a huge one. That's it. Well, he's so wonderful. Musk praised the... Chinese government last week on their anniversary celebrated with them. When you think about Elon Musk and his behavior towards China, it could have a lot to do with SpaceX. It's a pretty complicated case mod. Uh, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous. Um, Guy, do you get that reference by any chance? Yeah, I think it's probably one of those songs. Who is it? That Slim Shady guy no, or the, the other guy? It's the Big Lebowski. What's his name? It's the Big Lebowski. Um, Marshall Mathers. I like him too. You guys glossed right by my Lady Gaga reference about that song, by the way, that that Wrecking Ball song, oh which is one of you've her done, better you've tunes. You've done it again. No, you actually said it was uh, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, Taylor yeah. Swift yeah. Guy, guy takes a, a couple jokes that he's got that are kind of love his him. crutches. And he just, he's like your old uncle. He, he's yeah, like I, the I, old I, uncle. I, you know, yeah. it makes me laugh. And yeah. I guarantee you there are people right now that are laughing their asses off no, because it's funny not, it's just when, ha-ha funny i think over the next couple of weeks as we get into earnings we know that you know when banks kick it off we'll, we'll they usually kind of set the tone but by the end of earnings season we likely have kind of shifted through some of those kind of early um kind of cycles in a way so i think in the next few weeks we could see lower lows i know guy in the s&p 500 you think there's a good chance that we see maybe that 200 day moving average which is 3850 i'll just say this the last time that the 10-year u.s treasury yield was at one point three percent that was in february and you know where the s&p 500 is about 39.50 whoa guy adami coming in hot well clearly the market's not boring you know else is not boring our next guest packy mccormick 
of the Not Boring newsletter after this. Packy McCormick is the founder and writer of the popular newsletter, Not Boring, which educates subscribers on what's going on in business and the strategy behind the decisions companies make. The newsletter, founded in April of 2020, has exploded in popularity with around 60,000 subscribers. Prior to Not Boring, he spent six years at Breather, a flexible workspace provider, and four years in investment banking at Bank of America. Welcome to On the Tape, Packy. You know, I was just thinking, looking at you, Guy Adami, and Packy McCormick, I think the episode title is going to be The Irishman. <laughs> it, I like it, it is that. not going to be three and a half yeah, hours long and that. absolutely useless. And, and you know, on Fast Money, do you remember I gave, we were talking Netflix, we were talking The Irishman, and I gave my review. My review was, don't bother, just watch Goodfellas for the hundredth time. I didn't see The Irishman. What do you think of that, Packy? Do you, do you agree with that review of The Irishman or no? I think The Irishman is, you know, one of those things that you're happy you did maybe or like you have to do, yeah. but it wouldn't do like a second a, Like a colonoscopy. For example, oh geez, yeah, like uh, very much like colonoscopy. See, at my age, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things you have to do apparently like every couple of years. So, just throwing it out there, it's not the most pleasant thing, but it's you need it. Maybe for a similar demographic to my dad loved it. Oh, now you're so, so now Packy's throwing age that? jokes at my ass. He has met me for thirty <laughs> seconds and he's making fun of me. That's cool. I like that. All right, so guys, should we get into it? Packy has taken the internet by storm. He has the not boring newsletter on Substack, which has grown to- According to who, by the way? So when you have a podcast called Not Boring, I mean, according- <laughs> we'll be the judge like of that. The best hamburgers on Long Beach Island. I mean, who? according to who? So Not Boring, I mean, in, in, through the spectrum of your lens or my lens, or who are we talking about here? Yeah. The funny story there is I tried to start a company. I, I left the company that I was at before. I was at a company called Breather. I was thinking about starting a company that was kind of going to be like a cross between- Soho House and college extracurricular. So like had a debate club, had you know some other nerdy stuff going on. And I couldn't figure out what the demographic of people for that company was and what not the target guy. audience was. And it's not boring people is kind of what I settled on. And I realized I had gotten boring. I just worked all the time. And so I ended up just calling the club not boring. When that died, because I just started it right in the beginning of COVID, I just took the name and put it on the newsletter. So it might be boring, but that's the name that I'm going with. It is far from boring. I had kind of seen you on Twitter a little bit, and then there was a couple posts in May that you put out that got a ton of traction. One of them was the great online game, and the other one was Own the Internet, which was like a deep dive on Ethereum. And let's use those two posts as like a common thread throughout this conversation. I mean, Guy and I come at this from a public markets background. Interestingly, obviously, over the last 10 years, private markets have had more and more of an impact, obviously, on massive incumbents. But by the same token, we've seen just a half a dozen stocks, if you think in the public markets, just dominate, right? And it's not just the stocks, it's the companies. They've just become these massive monopolies. They have these huge war chests, these massive modes, these amazing managements and their ability just to buy whatever they want, hire, you know, that sort of thing. And so thinking about that, Packy, and I know that you look at both public and private markets, let's talk about for a second your thoughts here. We're mid-year 2021, forget 2020, that's in the rearview mirror here. The stock market, S&P 500, is up 15%. The NASDAQ's up 13%. It just seems that right now, those major names are just in the driver's seat here. And does that have the ability, in your opinion, to um, stifle innovation? Like, what, what's going on here as far as tech, as you think about it, and the way tech is seeping into almost every industry um, in the world, for that matter? Yeah, I actually think it's kind of a boon for innovation. So I, I 
a few months ago, wrote a piece called Dreams All the Way Up that I thought I was going to get absolutely roasted for, which was essentially tying the valuations of those big companies. I will call them Fang because it's it's awkward when you put Microsoft in there. I don't know how you pronounce that word. Hold on. You have- he doesn't. Clearly, Dan, can I educate yeah, Packy? Not that he needs to oh, be educated man. by yeah. Guy Adami, but what I will tell you, Packy, <laughs> you're clearly not a CNBC Fast Money fan, but about two years ago, Dan coined the name Mega in terms of the mega complex. That would be the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and the Amazon. Yes. And then he put Facebook in it, and he created the FMAGA for a number of myriad of different reasons, not least of which Facebook needed to be in there. And it was funny when President Trump, oh, yeah. nine <laughs> months later with his legal pad, all of a sudden came to the realization that, wait a second, MAGA yeah. actually stands for the Microsoft, the Apple, yeah. the Google, and the Amazon, each now around a trillion dollars in valuation. So there's your primer on the F MAGA. But that point though, uh, Packy, those all had just basically crossed $1 trillion in market cap. And ironically, here we are, and they're all about $2 trillion. It's crazy, right? One of the points that I made in that piece was that Apple breaking the trillion dollar barrier was kind of like Sir Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile, and that it's this thing that seemed impossible to break. And I remember being, that was a bad option, right? I worked in finance, like, kind of took the reins off after I left Bank of America Merrill Lynch. And I was like, all right, I can trade whenever I want now. I'm going to trade options and got absolutely crushed trading Apple options. But the frustration there was like the multiples were so incredibly low. And part of it was just this law of large numbers where people were like, this company can't be worth $900 billion. This company can't be worth a trillion dollars. And when Apple broke a trillion, other companies broke a trillion. Multiples actually probably came in line with where they should have been all along. And I think that's had this cascading effect down the market. And so the point of the piece was private market companies and some of the smaller public market tech stocks are almost valued as a probability that they might one day get as big as the largest companies. And so I think that those companies getting very, very big and showing how big tech companies can get. I mean, Facebook just broke a trillion dollars, but WhatsApp could be a trillion dollar company by itself if they start monetizing that and make the right moves there and empower small businesses and emerging markets and all of that. So I think there's a lot of room to run in those names. So, Packy, let me ask you a question. You mentioned WhatsApp potentially being a trillion-dollar company. You might be right. I remember being in on the set of Fast Money when the WhatsApp news came out, and I had never freaking heard of WhatsApp. I'm not embarrassed to say it. I mean, I didn't know. Dan happened to know about it. And what was it? I think it was, what was the number? Billion. Was it six, uh, 21 million. 16 billion? Yeah, 21 billion. billion. Whatever it was, I'm like, what the hell is that? But how do you get up the curve on what you know for people like boomers like me i've never heard of it but there's so many tech companies out there i mean it must be a daunting task to get an understanding on all these companies that are out there right now there are i mean so i'm doing both kind of you know a little bit of public market i'd say investing not trading i buy i hold i'm not smart enough to time the market and then venture investing as well and so trying to get a sense of that landscape is really just I mean, you can do all the research that you want. You can buy PitchBook and do all of those types of things. But it's really this kind of community of people who are giving each other ideas and, and things are kind of bubbling up. And so it's a lot of that kind of signal. Like, oh, I talked to my engineering friend at this company. They're using this infrastructure and six other companies are using this infrastructure product. So there's a lot of that community bubbling up of names. But if I wanted to go just full blast on all of the inbound companies I'm getting. I could talk to 12 new companies a day. It's insane out there, which is crazy. At this point, an early stage company with an idea, if you see something pre-product that is worth less than $10 million at this point, it's kind of shocking. So valuations in the earlier stages have gotten high, but I think that's because 
both founders and investors see things like WhatsApp, which was a small team of people. Sequoia led multiple rounds in a row and then it sold for 19, 21, whatever in, in Facebook stock to Facebook. Now it's worth multiples because of Facebook's ascent since then. And so I think there's a ton of early stage stuff that's being valued on the small chance that it might be one of those companies, but it's hard to keep up with for sure. Well, you know, that's a really interesting point. What you said is that I can think of probably a couple dozen crypto protocols that have 10, $20 billion market caps. And to your point about these large centralized monopolies in the public markets, they have every incentive in the world to use their currency when you say to acquire that next thing as a bolt on. So to your point, though, are we going to see a stifling of innovation? Are we going to see two silos? Are we going to see, you know, a centralized silo where the big behemoths just continue to gobble up everything in their path? path, but then you see this decentralized path. And we're already kind of seeing it a little bit in DeFi, decentralized finance. I think there's a few different paths. So I'd say Microsoft and Salesforce can't acquire everything on the, the B2B and the SaaS side. And so I do think there's a bunch of infrastructure companies, like nobody is acquiring Stripe. Twilio is a monster that I think is going to continue to just kind of compound and run. So there's all these kind of infrastructure companies that I don't think are going to get bought by any of the big guys. And there's a lot of kind of earlier stage stuff. I just wrote about a company called Scale that is building AI infrastructure by starting with labeled data. I wrote about a company called NextHealth, which is building healthcare infrastructure by this crazy plan to sell SaaS to dentists to be able to integrate with their EHRs, to be able to create an API, to then be able to create a platform. So Wait, there's all these just, things that- You just lost guy. Wait, you just no, lost I, guy. No, I'm paying attention. <laughs> Cheapest thing you can do. You didn't lose me. You lost Dan and he's, he's what they call projecting onto me. <laughs> all I'm saying is there are these companies that don't fit neatly into the big tech companies. So Microsoft owns the office suite. I was a big Slack bull and it was a bummer to see them force Slack into Salesforce's hand. Obviously on the social side, it's going to be really tough. I think Snap is doing a, a pretty good job despite competition from Facebook kind of going it on their own. But on social, it's you know a little bit tough to compete with those big guys. In search, nobody's going to win. I think there are so many categories that haven't been touched by tech that companies can go build $100 billion. So PMAC, up. you mentioned Roger Bannister. By the way, a few folks playing our home game. I think it was early May 1954. His exact time, again, if memory serves, like three minutes, 59 seconds, and 3.59 and four tenths. So he literally just broke... The four-minute mile, which to your point seemed undoable prior, the same way of getting to a trillion dollars. But what a lot of people don't know is he only held that record for about 46 days. So I know everybody says Alibaba is the next trillion-dollar company. I'm not looking to play stock market with you, but what company that nobody talks about in your estimation is the next trillion-dollar company? That nobody talks about. This is a really good question. I mean, this is not one that nobody talks about. I think Stripe has real potential to be a trillion dollar company. I don't know if it's going to be the next one, but I think Stripe has real trillion dollar potential. I mean, it's the darling of the VC and private market worlds, but that one just feels like it because of a combination of a couple of things. One, they're just embedding themselves into the internet and growing the GDP of the internet is, is their mission and taking a small piece of pretty much all of the activity that happens online without really touching the enormous B2B payments market yet. So some companies are going after that and whoever is able to actually start taking a tax on that huge B2B payment market, and I think Stripe is in a pretty good spot to do that, is going to be an absolute monster. And they're just led by the Collison brothers. So any bear case against that company, they've thought about 
in a hundred different ways that are smarter than I could. So I, I, that would be my bet coming from 95 billion, I think in the most recent round to a trillion. So it's pretty fascinating though, at, let's call it a, a hundred billion. That's not too far away from where Square is, right? In the public markets that went public a few years ago. And then PayPal, which was obviously spun out from eBay years ago, has a $350 billion market cap. So when you say a trillion for a company like Stripe, and you know, one of the things I think is really interesting is that obviously going public Public is one of the best ways to kind of grow your audience, if you will. Do you think that deals? I know you've done a deep dive on Stripe, and you guys again can find that on Not Boring here. Um, how far away are we from a Stripe IPO, and do you think it quickly catches up to a PayPal uh, market cap? Yeah, I mean, they were rumored to be the PSTH SPAC target for a long time. That that never happened, uh, and you know, it didn't seem likely that, that was ever actually going to happen. They say that they're not going to IPO for at least the next few years. I think like, you know, every company says it, Amazon still says it, but very much a kind of day one attitude where they still have a ton of infrastructure to, to build. I think if they go public right now, 95 billion gets blown out in a heartbeat. There's no private stock that has more demand than Stripe stock. So I think they climbed 200 billion fairly quickly. Um, 350, I think is, you know, doable in a couple of years if they're able to keep growing. I think what's really interesting about Stripe is that they kind of spent the first seven years of their life heads down building in the past four years and even more recently have just been adding new products month after month after month after month. And so somehow 12 years into their life, they're just starting to really kind of accelerate and, and spin that wheel. So I think there's a ton of room to kind of continue to compound there. So folks who listen to this are saying to themselves, how can, a, how can a human being know about so many different companies and speak so eloquently and have a, have a podcast Never boring, not boring, boring as shit, whatever the hell it is. How did you get here? Like, I, I, the backstory is fascinating to me because as a kid, were you stoked by the stock market? Companies fascinated you, tech head. You know, where's your head at and how did you wind up here? A little bit of everything. Both of my parents worked for themselves, were consultants. You know, my dad was a management consultant, so talked about this kind of stuff at the table all the time. One of his clients was the Miami Herald. So when I was like six, I had a little post it note newspaper that I would write about what was happening in the house. So I guess like there was that writing thing there, but have followed the stock market for a while, worked in finance, went to Duke, studied econ, worked in finance. So that was kind of that piece of it. But from the second that I got to Bank of America, I knew I wanted to leave and go to to do a startup. At All some right. So point. wait, stop for a second. Okay. <laughs> this is, you went to Duke. Love that. By the way, it's I've been there. I think it's one of the prettiest, if not the prettiest campus in the United States. Number one. I mean, the whole Cameron crazy thing is ridiculous. Coach K's last year, I get it. How come every guy that comes out of that program, not named JJ Redick or Grant Hill, sucks in the NBA? <laughs> or God. Zion Williamson. Oh, come on, man. He's, it's a little too early to, to put him in the Hall of Fame. Let's not give him a yellow jacket yet or a gold jacket, as Bill Parcells said. Shane Battier was a consistent. No, stop. You're embarrassing yourself. NBA now champion. you're embarrassing yourself. <laughs> if all you got is Shane Battier, I mean, that's that's not good. Corey Maggette, I'm not kidding. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll probably see more NBA superstar Duke players now, but it, it does come in a trade-off, right? Like, So for yeah. years, Duke was a place where you stayed for four years, and now Duke is a place that has kind of become a bit of a one-and-done school, which is a bummer as it one, bummer. an old guy with not that much time to keep up. It's the first time I've really felt old where I'm like, Who's that play? Who's number 13 again? Which is a bummer because before it was so easy to follow Duke. You'd find somebody freshman year, you'd follow them through four years, you'd get to know them, and now it's one and done. 
So I don't know. I think probably that that ends up translating to better NBA talent and people who just want to get to the league more quickly. But it is a bummer. From so Dan's, I would just no, tell no, you no. right now, PMAC, Dan's pissed at me. He's like, oh my God, you're talking about Duke basketball. We're going to lose our audience, blah, blah, blah. That was a great question. And by the way, JJ Redick is the best player to come out of Duke. Full stop, don't at me. Dan, back so, to so you. So Guy Adami, how do you come up with a new nickname for a guy whose first name is a nickname to begin with? Okay, like you can't just start calling him PMAC. He's P- I, I, I guarantee you he has friends that call him PMAC. Tell me I'm wrong. Z, I'm not from Boston, so I have zero <laughs> friends who call me PMAC. Yeah. Well, now you got me. All so right, uh, let's do this. So Guy, I'm going to help answer your question. I'm going to kick it over to Packy here. So where did he come from? I first learned of him on Twitter. And it sounds like you uh, enjoy Twitter. It's part of your online game. It was your kind of gateway to the online game, right? And so you just mentioned some of the social stocks. And and it's really interesting. The one thing I will say to you, though, when you think of like, you know, Alphabet nearing $2 trillion and Facebook at a trillion, and and you look at like a Twitter with a $55 billion market capitalization and a Snap, you know, I think around $100 billion, give or take, and a Pinterest around 50, you say to yourself, man, they are not going to be able to make it alone. And I could see a scenario where Jack Dorsey, who runs two companies, this guy would say very well, and he took a lot of criticism for doing that, maybe calls up Evan Spiegel one day and said, hey, bro, uh, what are we going to do about this? Because, you know, together we become more of a fighting chance. What do you think about that? And talk to us a little bit about some of the social properties. Oh, man. I hadn't really spent much time thinking about that idea. I mean, I think there is an interesting idea, which is Square and Twitter combining potentially at some point. Twitter is quickly becoming my biggest holding at $55 billion. I think it has the strongest network effects among power users of any of the social platforms. Or another way of putting it is it has the highest dollar value for most of its power users to switch off the platform of any product in the world. There are people on Twitter who you could not pay $10 million to stop using Twitter. And so I think they are finally picking up their development pace. They're finally rolling out new things. There's still a lot of waiting and seeing if super follows works, how big Twitter spaces can get, what that does for engagement, if they've actually fixed kind of the ad engine over there, which I'm not an engineer. I think I could probably fix the ad product at Twitter. It serves, you know, like old NFL clips sponsored by some random insurance company that I'm never going to buy is the current ad product. So there's a lot of room there. The fact that it's still alive and that, that users love it as much as they do, and they're finally trying to play with new ways to to monetize. I just think it's such a valuable property that they're going to figure something out. Guy and I agree. I mean, we've been fairly consistent, I think, for years. The scarcity of the product and the uniqueness of it are, are really interesting. I will say that I've just noticed what you've noticed is that there is a monetization tab now in your settings. If you go there and you can turn on super follows and you can, you know, then there's review, which is the Substack competitor that they bought earlier in the year. And then spaces, you can ask for ticketed spaces. I mean, those are things that all happen in the last couple of months, which is pretty fascinating. It seems like more innovation and more focused on the user or the power user experience, but to increase engagement than we've seen in the last five years. From everything that I've heard from people who, who've met him, Kayvon, who runs product over there, is phenomenal and has done a fantastic job motivating that org. I think they did, and they've said this over and over again, spent a lot of time rebuilding their tech infrastructure. Now they're able to build more quickly on top of it. And so they're, they're starting to do things over there. Not to say that any of this is a foregone conclusion, right? Like review as a product, I love Twitter. I would love the ability to have a button that people can just subscribe to my newsletter right from Twitter. Review as a product isn't there yet. And so there's certainly a lot of stuff that they have to do. There's a lot of moves that they're making that sound really good. The rubber will hit the road. 
but I think once they start actually generating some super follow subscription revenue and adding that new revenue line to the mix and start reporting that, I wouldn't be surprised if they re-rated a little bit closer to to something like a, a snap potentially and stop trading in line with, with Facebook on an EV to revenue basis. What about M&A? They're competing with behemoths here and they can do whatever they want. The next Twitter thing that might come along, you know, Facebook could just easily buy or Microsoft could buy, you know, like there was that bidding war by a bunch of really odd, call them bedfellows, if you will, for TikTok when that was supposedly on the block. I mean, that's also a bull case for, t- uh, for Twitter, in my opinion, too, because I just don't see any upstart really bubbling up and taking any meaningful share. My favorite story, and this wasn't an M&A story, but the story of Snap and Facebook kind of stealing this the Snap Stories format for Instagram. And it seemed like this thing that was going to absolutely kill Snap. The stock went in into the shitter. It was a disaster for them, but it actually saved the business because it meant that all these advertisers could design an ad format that worked for both Snap and Instagram, and they weren't designing ads that worked just for Snap because it wasn't big enough. And so I think from an ad business perspective, it really saved them. I think that's an interesting, unique case with the stories format. Now everybody has stories. Everybody's copying that. On the audio side, everybody's copying Clubhouse, Twitter, and does it with, with Twitter spaces. I think that is less likely to survive potentially, although not ready to call club, something like a Clubhouse dead. But I think that there's so few really powerful networks. TikTok came up with a new paradigm. Somebody else will come up with a new paradigm in the future, but it's so few and far between that I, I think it's it's tough to, to swap by Twitter. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, one last thing on Twitter spaces, Guy and I have been messing around with it and doing them a couple times a week. We actually have a sponsor of this podcast, CME Group, has chosen to sponsor our spaces. And, and we just think it's a really interesting medium for real-time sort of things. We've heard the guys at Twitter and gals say, live, live, live. Well, the idea that you can narrate a live event, whether it be the stock market or a sporting event or whatever. So I kind of think... Twitter Spaces is going to be huge. I think, you know, Clubhouse is over for the most part. Anytime I was ever on a Clubhouse, I had my iPhone iPhone in my hand and I was just scrolling Twitter. You know what I mean? Exactly. So maps to your social graph. And I also think it has the potential to be a massive micro podcasting platform too. So we're all in there. Let me segue because I know Guy has some stuff to say here. I heard you last week on a fireside with First Mark Capital. Just so you know, Rick Heitzman, First Mark are partners of ours at Risk Reversal Media and they were our early seed investors and they're great friends of ours. So I really enjoyed your talk with them um, last week. But you said something that stuck out, that you are this eternal optimist. And I suspect that has to do um, really in in the terms of uh, investing, um, both public and private markets. Speak to us a little bit about that, because I know Guy and I have some some thoughts on that as, as market participants, but also as financial market pundits. We can't always be optimists. So I'd love to get your take on that. Explain a little bit. So, I mean, this is my blessing and my curse. And if there was ever... It's going to be a time where you can come of age in a market as an optimist. It would have been over the past 12 years, and particularly as a, as a tech optimist. But this is definitely my blessing in my career, so that I am really good at seeing the potential upsides in a company. Like I just said that, that WhatsApp alone could be a trillion-dollar company. It's really easy for me to make those connections. I can understand when I put my mind to it, the downsides for companies, but it's just so much less interesting to me because the return to shorting something is 1x and the return to being long a technology platform that continues to compound and reach a global audience is 10x, 100x, 1000x in some cases for for some private companies. And so I think probably part of this is a result of kind of my training and the it's growing up over the past 12 years in the market and particularly focused 
on technology stocks. Part of it's just my natural way that my brain works. But certainly, I think one of the reasons that I said I'm not a trader and I'm more a buy and hold investor is that over a long enough time horizon, I think for a lot of these tech companies, unless something goes catastrophically wrong and we're all in big trouble anyway, they're going to keep growing. And so as long as I can just shut my eyes and, and buy stuff that I like when it seems relatively cheap and just keep adding to the portfolio, so far, so good. No, it's a gift. It's not a curse at all. And there's an energy about you and folks can't see it, but I'm watching and there's a big smile on your face. You're a happy person. I think that's great. And I say this as somebody that was raised in the Wall Street, what can go wrong will go wrong. And I'm always the half empty, just by definition. So I look at things through a much different lens, but I got to tell you, the rose-colored glasses are on these meme or meme people. <laughs> What's your take on this whole Robin Hood, Davy Day trader, gamification of the stock market we've seen over the last 16 months or so? Oh, man. I've been used Robin Hood and, and all of that. I've been a little unimpressed. And like this, this seems like something that I would love. And I've been really unimpressed with their communication, with the fact that they encourage options trading so recklessly and gamify options trading so recklessly. And, you know, there's these little indicators that are like, I think this is going to go up or I think this is going to go down. And you're not talking about the ball crusher, just like bleeding data out. Like none of these things. So people end up making these trades, the stock moves in the right direction and they get totally wiped out. And they're like, what in the world just happened? And of course, like options trading is really hard. So as long as you're gambling, that's fine and they're responsible adults and people are allowed to gamble. The best argument I've heard for why that's okay is, you know, if you look at the average $450 account or whatever in Robinhood, if that goes to zero, they would maybe be able to survive another week on that $450. If it 100Xs, then that's real meaningful money. And so maybe there's a little bit of at a certain income level or savings level, it might make sense actually to gamble that money. And so maybe Robinhood's not all, all evil there. I think some of the particular things seem crazy. AMC, GameStop, all of those things seem crazy. I think that the general trend towards things getting crazier always kind of continues. So it'll be really interesting to see kind of when this settles, what the new normal is that just carries forward. Like, is retail a more active participant all the time? Does that stop in maybe not a, an extreme bear market or downturn because that's still kind of fun and exciting, but in a flat market that just kind of churns for a while, do people get disinterested? Maybe that's what resets it. But I do think that retail is kind of involved in the markets now. It has become more gamified. It is on your phone and things don't go back to people going to their investment advisor and, and saying, you know, just put me in, in S&P and, and I'll see you in 30 years. So things are going to get crazier. So we started this podcast, Packy, back in, in mid-January. That was really the kind of the height of this GameStop meme thing. And obviously Reddit, the Wall Street Bets, and Robinhood was very much a, a part of that. And, you know, at the time, our co-host, Danny Moses, you know, we, we kind of framed it as, okay, so you have an iPhone and you basically have three apps if you're predisposed to kind of gamble, right? One of them would be Coinbase, if you like the crypto. The other one would be DraftKings. And, and the third would be Robinhood. And so all of a sudden, though, there's a lot of competition for those dollars. So when the Robinhood S1 came out, it didn't surprise me to see the average account size so small. I, I suspect that a lot of those 
investors, if you will, or traders or gamblers, whatever you want to call them, have accounts where their 401k is over at Fidelity or something like that. And so this is their kind of their funny money gambling account. I guess my point would be is if we – they haven't seen a bear market yet. It's just that simple. They haven't seen their accounts go down in a meaningfully way, a meaningful way when you have leverage also, which we also know can be just the killer here. And so I suspect you know sooner or later these things will die. We've always had meme stocks, but maybe they just move somewhere else. Just talk to us a little bit about the psychology of the meme stocks. Again, going back to the online game because you had a lot of you had a lot of really interesting thoughts about memeing things into existence. That's not a world, an investment world that Guy and Dami and I were brought up in. Is it here to stay, or is it just a lot of fun on the internet on your iPhone? The interesting thing to me about the meme stocks, and this is this can include. Tesla, this can include a wider universe than just kind of GameStop and, and AMC, is that people who are buying those stocks or retail investors who are buying those stocks are buying a whole lot more than the percentage of ownership in the company and the discounted cash flow of that company's future earnings. They're buying the chance to feel like they belong to a community. They're buying entertainment. They're buying some you know digital asset that they can show on their profile that I am a Tesla stockholder. And so they're buying all these other things. And so of course, they're going to price it a little bit differently. They also don't care if they lose 20 bucks, they, if they make a hundred bucks, great. But if they can be part of a community, then that's part of what they're buying, I think, when, when they're buying these stocks. I think that's probably here to stay. And I think with, with crypto and with NFTs and with a bunch of things that are more purposely designed to be displayed as part of your online profile, you are certainly buying more things when you're buying a financial asset than just the present value of the discounted cash flow. Yeah, but that might be the case in crypto. It's just not in the stock market. You can attach your social trading app to your Twitter and this and that or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, you have a margin call, you have a margin call. It's lights out. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And so that's the thing that I think this whole sticking it to the man, sticking it to the shorts, being a part of a movement, just so these guys know that Occupy Wall Street It went away. You know when it went away? When the winter came because people didn't want to hang out at that park anymore because it got too cold. And so the lack of a bear market, you know, to me, it just kind of signals that they've got another life in your great online game. But sooner or later in the stock market, it's pretty unforgiving. Like I said, my issue with Robinhood has been how easy it makes it to one, take out margin and two, options trade. Like there are things that can kill you in the short run that are just worth avoiding if you aren't exactly sure what you're doing. And so those kind of things, absolutely. Buying Tesla and being a part of the Tesla fan club and doing all that, like that kind of stuff will persist. And I think attaching a little bit more to a company, not to meme it into existence or stick it to the man or anything like that, but saying I'm an owner of this thing. I mean, if you look at the companies that were the biggest companies in the world a decade or two decades ago, it was like China Construction Bank and Exxon and like not stuff that you interacted with every day. Now the biggest companies are Facebook and people are on Instagram every day or Google. They're Googling it all the time or Amazon. They're buying stuff from Amazon all the time. And so I think there is a little bit more of a personal attachment to a lot of the biggest names out there, which maybe over time gets traded away. But for now, I think it adds a little extra something. Yeah. So, all right. So valuation in Robinhood, about $40 billion. Um, We know that Coinbase in the public markets is about $45 billion or so, give or take. Um, to me, it seems like a no-brainer. This goes back to your owning the internet here. I'd rather own 
Coinbase and the promise of maybe stocks being tokenized one day or a whole host of other assets being able to trade in some sort of tokenized format and, and be on that platform than a platform that got what percentage of their sales in the last quarter was Dogecoin uh, for Robinhood? It was Robin an absurd, absurd amount. Yeah. It was a small yeah. volume, but they were able yeah. to take a huge spread on it. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk crypto. Let's let's take us let's take our people out. And again, remember, Guy Adami's here. He's our resident boomer a little bit here. He, Love the crypto. He's learned a lot. He's learned <laughs> He's actually learned a lot. Guy has actually had these amazing conversations with Michael Saylor. There was, an, and it's on our on the tape feed. He had an hour long interview a few months ago with him, and then he did a trading spaces with us for about forty five minutes. And you know, the guy is so clear eyed about his vision, and he's transparent. And I'm going to let Guy get into it a little bit, but. Give us your sense here. You're obviously Ethereum over Bitcoin here. We've seen this peak to trough decline in crypto about 50% from the highs. Where do you think we are right now? I think there's a few different things that kind of happened all at the same time, all which make it seem a little bit silly, right? Like Elon turning on Bitcoin and the China mining thing and a few like meaningless long-term things happening that just, I think, popped the bubble a little bit or took a little bit of the air out of the bull run, which I think is overall healthy. I am... I think more of an Ethereum bull. And this could be one, my kind of general optimism, do I like complicated stuff more than I like uncomplicated stuff? And so the fact that Bitcoin is an asset that just requires other people to believe that Bitcoin is worth something. And maybe it becomes this kind of store of value that people across the world trust and El Salvador adopted it. And so all it needs is for people to keep buying it and believing that it's worth a lot of money and there we go. And then we're censorship resistant and the government can't take our money and they can't print us to death and, and all of those kinds of stuff. Like, there's a very clear case for Bitcoin that just doesn't interest me very much. I think Ethereum is so interesting because Ethereum itself is kind of a new rails for you know the, the Web3 decentralized internet that requires one, buying ETH to participate and build and spend money on top of it. And then with the upcoming changes to right now, Ethereum is a proof of work network, which means that like Bitcoin, to secure the network, there's a bunch of computers around the world that spend a bunch of energy doing complex math problems in order to prove that they're good actors and then put their block on the chain. It's moving to a proof of stake mechanism, which means that essentially if you own ETH, you get to vote about what comes out of the chain. If you vote well, you keep it and you earn a little bit more yield. If you vote in a bad way, then you lose your ETH. And so that's how they kind of align incentives and secure it. What that means is that more of the value uh, from the economic activity that happens on top of Ethereum actually accrues to ETH holders, which is good. And then there's this other thing called EIP-1559, which changes how gas fees work. So whenever you spend ETH, to do something that's built on top of Ethereum, you have to pay a little transaction fee called the gas fee. Right now, that goes to the people who mine to secure the network, and they have to sell it essentially to pay for their computers and the energy and taxes and all sorts of stuff. Now, part of that just gets burnt. And so theoretically, ETH will have a decreasing supply, whereas Bitcoin has this kind of rising but cap supply. So a bull case for ETH is that it actually becomes this deflationary asset at the same time as more and more people are building useful things on top of Ethereum, whether that's DeFi, whether that's NFTs, whether that's people organizing in DAOs, whether that's people building decentralized music and video players and all of these other things. If you believe that there's you know some sort of value to, to any of these kind of decentralized types of apps, 
then he believed that there's more kind of demand for ETH and potentially as you use it, the supply decreases. And so I think that's really one, interesting and a fun problem to think through. And then two, I think long-term pretty bullish for for the token. It might surprise you, but I was actually EIP 1547. So I was actually ahead of your ass packing, but that's just, <laughs> you know, I'm just putting it out there. Before we get out of here, I do pay attention, cheapest thing you can do. Vimcal, talk to me. Tell our folks why oh. they should be looking at this. Oof, Vimcal is awesome. So I, the thing that I hate most about email generally is that it ends up in scheduling something and then I have to go to my calendar. And one, there's a meeting, which takes up a bunch of time, particularly when I'm trying to write. But two, my calendar experience kind of sucks. And I have to like go find the Zoom link and tell Google to like not do the Google Meet thing and all of that. Vimcal is like a better Google Calendar plus Calendly functionality where Calendly you can say, here's my available slots. Vimcal, you literally just drag on your calendar. It creates a link with a bunch of different slots that you just email to somebody. And so it's this better, smoother calendar that you can use with a bunch of shortcuts. And then one of those shortcuts, you hit the letter A, you can drag and drop and send people your availability and it just makes scheduling so much easier. I legitimately think this saves me a bunch of time, even in the, the week that I've been using Vimcal. I actually, so I tweeted about them, was not an investor and then talked to the company because I drove a bunch of signups to their wait list. And now, as of, I think, today, I'm an investor in Bimcal, so full disclosure. But when I tweeted that, was not, just was blown away by the product experience. Well, listen, man, we are super impressed with your playing of the online game here. We really enjoy your Twitter. We enjoy Not Boring. Tell the audience here, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Tell us, tell us, Packy, or tell the audience where they can find you, man. Where, where is your blog? Where is your Twitter? What is it? All that stuff. Yeah, it's notboring.co.co. There's some shitty website at notboring.com that the guy won't sell. Uh, so notboring.co. And then Twitter is at PackyM, P-A-C-K-Y-M. Yeah, check it out, guys. There's two pods a week where he reads his posts for the people who just like to walk the dog and listen to it. But we really appreciate your work. It's been our pleasure to get to know you. We appreciate you coming on the, on the tape here. And uh, we will see you very soon, Packy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.